0: It's a phrase I've heard over and over these past few years. There's no point in trying to talk to them. Them is always the person with whom we have strong disagreements, or it might represent an entire group of people that we've decided are unreachable and unreasonable. But there is a point. It's just not what you might think. Our question this episode... How can we get past our surface differences to find our common humanity? Welcome to Episode 65 of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm your host, Beth Bilo, and I'm so grateful to spend this time with you. Before getting to the main conversation, I feel like it's important to acknowledge that for everyone everyone listening to this podcast, these are strange times. The novel coronavirus is blazing a trail around the world. It's already infected tens of thousands of people and killed thousands more. We have little idea of when the pandemic will end. But we can each do our part to help it end sooner rather than later, or at least with less dire consequences. By staying informed following the directions health professionals provide, and taking care of one another as best we can. As you'll hear a little bit in this interview that I did with Kern Berry, I have felt a little discouraged by the way the virus has been politicized, whether that's by calling it by an inappropriate and racist name or blaming a particular political party for the messaging in the media. The consequences of that politic. Politicization—I <laughs> can't quite say that word. Um, it's led to some people denying the severity of the situation, and therefore not following directions, not exercising the caution that's needed. That you know is going to help us flatten the curve, as they have put it. You know, lessening the number of infections so that the healthcare system can keep up with the influx. Instead of pointing fingers and finding blame, we need to look at places where the virus has lost its grip, find out what they're doing right, and learn from it. We need to listen to trusted scientists and medical professionals and follow their advice. And we need to allow ourselves to feel the full constellation of emotions that we're feeling. Over the past few weeks, I have felt depressed, frustrated, annoyed, Inspired, motivated, lazy, calm, and overwhelmed. I've let my reptilian brain take charge when I went grocery shopping. And no, I didn't hoard toilet paper or disinfecting wipes. What I found though was that once I started putting food and household items in my cart, it was really hard to stop. My rational brain was it felt like literally in a tug of war with my reptilian brain. And it was fascinating to experience that in such a visceral way. It's like I could sort of remove myself from my my body and see myself moving through the aisle at the store and noticing the slight panic that took hold, especially as I saw empty shelves or saw other people with full carts. It was like the primal urge to um, hunt and gather was activated just by being there. The point of sharing all of this is to just say that it's important to give yourself permission to feel however you feel and do what you need to do to take care of yourself and those you love. One of the ways that we sustain ourselves through times like these is through art and music, and books, and poetry. And I've seen a number of inspiring poems circulating lately, and I thought I would share one of my favorites. Reading it, truly, it healed and softened my heart in a way that I so needed. And I hope it does the same for you. The poem is dated from March eleventh, 2020. It's called Pandemic, and the poet is Lynn Unger. Pandemic. What if you thought of it as the Jews consider the Sabbath, the most sacred of times? Cease from travel. Cease from buying and selling. Give up just for now on trying to make the world different than it is. Sing, pray, touch only those to whom you commit your life. Center down. And when your body has become still, reach out with your heart. Know that we are connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. You could hardly deny that now. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Surely that has become clear. Do not reach out your hands. Reach out your heart. Reach out your words. Reach out all the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as we all shall live. And I find myself getting a little choked up as I read that last part, because it has been a sad time, and I really appreciate that reminder that we are all in this together for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, as long as we all shall live. So thank you to Lynn Unger for those those really beautiful words. And with that, let's move to my conversation with Kern Berry. He was my very first guest on this podcast. So it's a very special treat to welcome him back to the show. Kern Berry is a former Silicon Valley communications professional with deep roots in the fields of interpersonal communication and conflict resolution. He leads nonprofit seminars and workshops on how to heal relationships and unleash our capacity for creative collaboration. In the early 2000s, Kern co-founded Global MindShift a nonprofit enterprise that offered facilitated online workshops on the essential skills we need to survive and thrive in today's interconnected and interdependent world. In 2016, following the U.S. presidential election, Kern launched the Difficult Conversations Project, an initiative to help address our national divide. You can find Kern's full bio on the episode webpage at howcanisaythis.com. Hi, Kern. Welcome back to How Can I Say This? I am super delighted to be talking to you. You were my first guest. And here we are in episode 65. So thank you so much for coming back.
1: Well, wow, 65. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, it's great to be back. And thank you for for inviting me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Well, we're talking right now in the midst of a pandemic, Mm -hmm. very different times than when we spoke, you know, a year and a half or so ago. So I'd like to start with what's on everyone's mind, which is the pandemic and the coronavirus what I'm noticing is that there's so much misinformation out there and that the situation has become really polarized and politicized. So it seems really appropriate to bring this up with you because I'm thinking you're going to have some insights about how we talk about this issue. So my curiosity is and this comes from your your book, you know, how can we use what you have found out about our survival drive to understand why something that should unite us in resolve to defeat it, that being the coronavirus, has instead proven to be a polarizing and divisive issue?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I mean, I think I have to fall back initially on my own experience, which is that I personally don't necessarily have a sense that it's dividing us. I think when it first began, you know, there was questioning, is it a hoax? Is it just an excuse, you know? for those who are, are not Trump fans, you know, to further undermine his presidency, et cetera. Um, and my sense now is I, I feel like, you know, people are starting to get on board. They're starting to re- recognize this is real. There's less, less the question of whether it's really happening or not. So, I, I, so you know, maybe I'm not looking at, the, uh, at all the media that you are looking at. That, that's quite possible. So my personal experience is that I feel like it's actually um, more unifying than dividing. And it's clear that there's, you know, the survival drive um, has kicked in with people going to supermarkets and hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizers, and that sort of stuff. So the, the survival drive is definitely kicked into gear. But I think there's also a community building drive. Uh, having an intense shared experience, um, we know, it can be very unifying. And I guess I'm more optimistic. I I think it might even unify us in a way that other global challenges have for whatever reason failed to do. And I think with this one, it's easier to see that we're all in this together. Everyone's vulnerable. I think of it as a demonstration of our common humanity in that way that could be very powerful even though we're sort of, you know, shelter at home mode right now, we get out and we walk up through the streets and we see people and we maintain, you know, that six feet of distance. It's sort of funny, that little dance that happens. But, you know, now, you know, how are you used to be sort of a throwaway greeting. And now it sort of has taken on a new deeper meaning because we kind of, we all have this shared context. Now we know that when we say it, we're talking about something that is actually very um, serious and, and has, has a lot of meaning for people. And there are stories about people reaching out and connecting and helping others. So I I do think that there are, you know, there's those two drives, right? Sort of what I'm calling that community building drive and then that more self-focused survival drive. And I think we just need to decide which to become aware of the impulses, right? And to decide which one do we want to nurture.
0: You're reminding us that there's a choice um, about Mm -hmm. how we respond, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. This is where mindfulness can be really helpful. you know you wake up each morning and just sort of remind yourself of those choices i was uh, my son called me the other day and he was at a supermarket looking for some stuff and he was doing it at night and he was finding a lot of empty shelves and and so he, and so he's you know he's looking around for what he wants and at the same time he was saying that he was careful not to buy the stuff that he knows that other people can buy that are uh, uh, for food stamps certain Food goods can can be purchased by food uh, stamps and certain goods can't. And so there he was. It was just sort of that juxtaposition. He's trying to meet his own needs, but then he's thinking about other people. And I think that's just something we can all uh, balance for ourselves. You know, my wife says that this is an opportunity to ask what's working and what's not working. And the way she put it is, is love is working. Our institutions are not working. You know, I mean, that's becoming very clear. And that's a conversation we need to have. So anyway, i don't know if that's a very good answer to your to your question, but it's just based in my own experience,
0: yeah, I so appreciate that. I think you know where I was seeing the divisiveness was kind of along the political lines of mm-hmm. people saying it's being blown out of proportion or you know that sort mm-hmm. of thing um, and I do think you're right that you know i that was a few days ago, and I think we have kind of turned a corner. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing that. And and I appreciate also that things like this do highlight where things are working and where things are not. So I love your wife's point about that. And from this point, we have a choice about how we respond, especially to the things that aren't working, because it's certainly highlighting flaws in the system that I think a lot of people knew were already there, but they weren't seen or felt by most people. Yeah, exactly. And now that's yeah, been put exactly. out into the spotlight. Yeah. And we can't ignore yeah. it.
1: <laughs> right, right. I think that's tremendously positive. We need that.
0: Yeah, so there is this opportunity to be united and mm-hmm. and it's good to see that that surfacing more than it was in the beginning. So I appreciate your reframe (laughs) from my question, (laughs) because I have found myself becoming rather cynical and, Uh, you know, how we can sometimes have confirmation bias. So maybe this is an example, actually, of confirmation bias, where, you know, the initial responses I was seeing were sort of along party lines and pointing fingers and blame and um, name-calling get your head out of your, you know, fill in the blank, that sort of thing. And once that was established, you know, from whatever data I was seeing, I started to notice that more than I notice the people helping each other kinds of stuff. Yeah. And so in my mind, yeah. it becomes like, oh, this is really divisive. Yeah. So I'm just kind of noticing that as we're talking. <laughs> yeah. And it's totally
1: understandable, right? It's been going on this for a number of years that that response to things that have come up. And and I guess that's when, well, you know, again, the power of this maybe particular um, challenge that we're facing is, is that it's piercing um, subjective viewpoint as a people, because I feel like all of that disagreement um, on other issues, is it real? Is it not real? Whatever, whatever. Um, it has just stayed in that subjective realm, right? Even with global warming, real or not real people, some people still aren't sure and again, this is just pierced it. It's taken a little bit of time, but it's pierced it. And so finally, here is something that we can all sort of claim as a common ground of reality that we agree on. And then if we can build on that, and I guess that's, that's the next opportunity, right? Is, is Will this somehow help us reframe our relationships and give us a new place to reengage? And I don't know if it will or not, but I think that's a
0: possibility. Well, I share that hope with you. For sure. Mm, So, mm. well, let's um, thank you for addressing that. It feels like it's the the elephant in the room for any conversations, Uh, like something that has to be cleared and acknowledged. Um, And it does lead, you know, it is connected to what we're going to be talking about. So I want to kind of step back and and talk about difficult conversations. And this is almost a, a building on that very first episode that you and I spoke about. And what I've noticed is that it it often seems that it's almost impossible for us to zoom up and see past our immediate, you know, in the moment feelings and needs. And that causes us to cling to our positions with such ferocity that conflict is almost inevitable in some cases. And this uh, now I'm conscious of sounding like the cynic or the pessimist, and I don't mean to be. (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just like, conflict everywhere. But it is part of what, you know, we have been seeing. And there's plenty of commentary out there that is talking about how sort of conflict is much more present now than it maybe was 10 years ago or, you know, that sort of thing. But um, or at least we're more aware of it. So how can we shift from that short term survival mindset and, and strategies that we create to a perspective that takes a more productive long view? Mm. Well, that
1: is a very deep question. And and I think to a certain extent, it's it's a complicated question in thinking about it. You know, I I think, like you said, you know, to stand back a little bit, that to to first just acknowledge that our society is really structured to promote short term thinking. And it does this in a number of ways. And one way it does it is is by creating fear. Most people, right, are, are economically insecure. You know, there's a fear of losing our job. If we lose our job, we lose our home. Then we don't have enough to eat. We can't get medical care. And that fear keeps us in our physical survival mode at a time when really our physical needs should be the least of our concerns. A huge part of the picture for me is how have we structured ourselves, how have we structured our society to actually promote fear? And and not just fear, but other elements that are associated with our survival drive. Mm -hmm. And so you have that going on. And at the same time, we have these challenges that we're becoming increasingly aware are wholly inadequate to meet. That for long-term challenges, short-term thinking works against us, not for us, you know. So the time when we really need to be present, to be creative, to think strategically, to cooperate with others, um, none of that's possible when we're caught in our survival drive. So on one hand, you know, we're societally encouraged to think about our short-term survival needs. On the other, we're being forced to think about our long-term survival needs. And then worst of all, those two things seem to be at odds with each other. That if we are really to think about global warming, then we start to thinking about the impact of jobs, you know, and it seems like this is sort of an untenable situation. We're in, a, we're in this, this bind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I was thinking to myself, so how do you get out of that bind? And I think we have to begin by asking the right questions. And this, again, to me, is where the coronavirus can, can help us, because, as you were saying, you know, it's really revealing the fragility of our institutions, in particular, our economic institution. I mean, it, it's collapsing. It's failed the stress test. It's unable to respond in any creative way. And so this idea, you know, that, that for me, I sort of think we're, we're beginning to see that we've built a society on sand, not rock. And the sand is the concept that we need to rely more on money than on each other. It's money that secures our future. But here we are in a situation that makes the opposite point, where community is what's important. Community secures our future. Community is the rock. I think if we can get a hold of that, then we can begin to have a conversation about how do we build community? You know, how do you build a society that fosters relationship building and really serves people? How do we do that? Just have the conversation can... Start to engage our long-term thinking skills, and and I think, that, and that's what we need right now. We need to be able to introduce just the the right questions that can only be answered from a long-term perspective, and then that engages that particular skill. So I don't know if that if that how well that communicates particularly, but that's where that's where it is for me. Are we asking the right questions? What is the society we really want? How do we build it? We don't need to make the changes right now, or we don't need to assume that certain things are going to be lost, but let's at least have the conversation, because we can so clearly see that what we have isn't working.
0: So what kind of question can we ask ourselves to start that conversation? I know you said, like, what kind of society do we want to be building? And that's a huge question. Um, Curious if there's some starter questions that warm up to that that we can be using to seed those conversations? Well, I mean, that's,
1: that's a great question. And I guess it kind of gets into another zone, perhaps, which is if we can see, right, that what we have doesn't work. I mean, I do think that at some point we have to start with the acknowledgement of what's not working. And then, and I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to do a very good job of answering this question, I can tell, because I'm going to fall back on the same thing. But let's, let's see where this all leads. Um, and if we can acknowledge that it's about community building, what is required for us to be able to work together to actually address that question? So it becomes a matter of relationship building, and then what are the ways in which we are able to build relationships? Because we're culturally conditioned not to particularly rely on each other, we have lost sight of what binds us foundationally what binds us. And that foundation to me is our common humanity. So how do we foster experiences and opportunities to connect at that level of our common humanity? And then I think, I, I, you know, and I really don't know what the interim questions are, Except I would say maybe it's really less about asking the the interim part is less about asking the questions than creating the foundation that allows us to engage in those questions so anyway that's a that's a big question, Beth, you know I don't think I have a good answer for you. I really don't
0: well, I appreciate the the exploration of it um, it makes me think about and I appreciate what you said you said something very important there at the end about. Yes, the question is important, but sometimes it's more like, are you creating the foundation? Are you creating the space for that conversation to happen Mm -hmm. so that people can Mm -hmm. feel free to ask big questions as well as maybe some that hit closer to home? You know, and I'm even thinking about a conversation with a neighborhood association, Mm -hmm. you know, where it starts out. What kind of neighborhood do we want to have? What kind of neighbors do we want to be for each other? Right. Um, right. If aliens were to visit us tomorrow, and observe how we interacted with one another, what would they see? And what would we want them to see? Mm-hmm. So to me, those are those are some things that popped into my head as you were sharing that could be, you know, gateways to the conversation that keeps it on that, that also emphasizes that community level that you were just talking about.
1: Right, right. I was at a, a, an event, uh, this was several weeks ago. They were having a conflict in their neighborhood about leaf blowers, you know, these things that are noisy and, and tend to... The
0: noisemakers?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Noisemakers, and they tend to be gas-powered, and they're kind of stinky. And, and you know, And I was thinking, I was reminded... We had neighbors next door to us that that could have been like the world's worst neighbors. Um, They had a dog that barked. Um, The husband was very mechanical, and he had all this equipment in his backyard, uh, tractors and, and motorcycles that he was fixing up. And sometimes he'd start them up, and the fumes would waft over in our backyard. And if we were in the backyard, we would have to come inside and stuff like that. So it could have gotten off on the wrong foot, right? We could have. Complain to them. And then that would have sort of set up tension. And, you know, we didn't even know that it's not a good way to start off a relationship. And so we didn't say anything, and we just got to know them. And they're just absolutely the nicest people, kindest people. Um, and we, we just we just came to love them. And so when he was, after that, once he was working on a project in his backyard, and the fumes were coming over, and I would walk inside. I was not walking inside out of irritation. I was walking inside out of a love for him. I want him to be able to have that time to do what he wants to do. And so my motivation totally changed from sort of being irritated and put upon to saying, this is me loving my neighbor. Those are such two different frames to come at a situation from. One actually feels bad, the resentment, the put upon this, the uh, oh, poor me. And the other one feels really good. To feel like you are loving somebody feels good. And I think we tend to think that that is the kind of relationship we can only have with family members, pretty much, right? Or the closest, closest of friends. But we can have that with anybody. And I think, so when I think of maybe if I get back to this, I would think like, what kind of society do we want to build? And what could we be doing in the interim? How do we learn to love each other? To love the people that are right next door to us, two doors down from us, three doors down from us. What does that mean? How would that change our interactions? Do we even know that that's an option for us? A friend of mine talked about falling in love with each other. And that falling in love tends to have such a romantic notion that when she says it, it's a little bit like, oh, wow. But she's right. It is. It's falling in love. Let's fall in love with each other. So anyway, so that just kind of brought me around to that other thing. And it's not necessarily, you know, the the easier questions, but it is that very tangible, difficult, necessary action that we can all take, which is figure out how do we love each other?
0: Yeah. and, And we always need to acknowledge with this that this is an ongoing conversation that is complicated and messy and there's no magic pill or easy answer, um, the the answers and the response, or I should say the responses, I don't even like the word answers with this kind of thing, because it mm-hmm. def- makes it sound like there's a right or a wrong, but right, right. our responses to this um, are as messy as the questions. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to, and sometimes, what it, I think it's a Dr. Seuss, you know, sometimes the questions are complicated and the answers are simple. Mm-hmm. And what you just shared is one of those simple answers to a very complicated question, which is how do we learn to love each other yeah
1: yeah,
0: yeah. simple but not easy yeah. simple, not easy, and
1: but so powerful, but extremely so powerful,
0: powerful.
1: yeah it 's amazing how much influence you can have on somebody, even strangers, just by being kind to them yes we 're not generally that kind to each other,
0: yeah, and part of that is also. It's hard to be kind to others if we're not kind to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's another mm-hmm. piece of work mm-hmm. that I think a lot... I mean, that's another lifelong journey, is learning how to be compassionate and kind to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And then yeah, you have absolutely. the reservoir and the experience to be able to expand that to others. Yeah,
1: right, right. Totally true, totally true.
0: So everybody, if you're not in therapy, go out and get in therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it is It is interesting. The whole concept, you know, you know, of mind chatter, of that tape we play in our head. Yeah. And often it is so self-critical and it goes on so often, like we don't even know it's happening. And it happens at different levels. Like, you know, you notice it at one level and you think, okay, I get, and then you realize, oh, it's actually operating at an even deeper level an even deeper level. Of, and where did that come from? And how do you raise it to consciousness so that you're not abusing yourself? with that negativity so anyway I, I just I couldn't agree more we have to figure out how to love ourselves as well
0: um, I feel like we could just keep talking about that because things just keep popping in my head but, um, sure. <laughs> but I do have a couple more questions sure. and here I am with the, the sort of cynic they, actually this is not cynical because I think that there's a solution one thing I hear over and over I hear it and I see it you know in social media and whatnot. there's no point in trying to talk to them I've seen that phrase repeated and I've heard it repeated so many times over the past couple years. And the them is being whoever is on the other side of the issue that you're on. Right. And it feels like there's a lot going on underneath that statement of there's no point in talking to them. It might be they're feeling resignation, hopelessness, anger, even superiority or self-righteousness, mm-hmm. among other things. So. I know that there's hope. <laughs> I refuse to believe that there's no point in talking to them. So how can we move past that feeling that there's no point?
1: Yeah, I and mean, that, that's, that's such a critical question. I get that, you know, people will come up and, in the workshop that I do and, and just make that claim, you know, well, there's just, there's just no point. And I think that this might end up getting a little repetitive, but I think the question that we have to answer is why talk to them? And I think there's the assumption there and that there's no point is that, it, you know, my goal is to change their mind and I'm not going to change their mind. And I think if your goal is to change their mind, then I would agree that there often is, there is no point. And I just don't think that that is a very um, strategic wise or helpful goal to want to change someone else's mind. I think the goal needs to be um, relationship building so that we can work together despite our differences. You know, then there's the point and that. I personally am convinced that the only problem we really have is broken relationships. I think everything stems from our disconnection from each other. We've stopped seeing each other. We've stopped caring for each other. And I think it gets back to living in a fear-based, you know, kind of zero-sum society where your loss is my gain. And I've mentioned this too, you know, we, we forgot what binds us. That's our shared humanity, our common humanity. It's really, that's the foundation of all relationships. And I think when we become disconnected from that, then the relationship loses resilience. We easily fall apart over really secondary issues. I think anyone who's been married (laughs) knows how the most inconsequential thing can spark the biggest argument. And it's because there has been a deeper disconnection where the person doesn't feel seen, doesn't feel honored, doesn't feel loved. And so the relationship has lost its grounding. And we know that when people are disconnected, when people are alienated, it's very fertile soil for harmful and destructive thinking and, and acting, we know that. So the point then is to reconnect. Connection is love, and connection heals, it can, and it, it promotes constructive rather than destructive thinking. So if we can see that the purpose of conversation is at heart to connect, then there's always a point to that conversation, always a point. And you really are. You're, you're really helping heal society. And, and one of the things I get to in my book, you know, is what well, I think is fascinating studies being done in, in neuroscience and brain research and neuropsychiatry, this idea that interpersonal integration strengthens neural integration, this idea when we are able to heal a relationship, turn a disconnected one into a connected one, we actually strengthen the neural connections of our brain. And that makes us smarter, it makes us wiser, it makes us more present, it makes us more flexible, we're more emotionally resilient. There's just so many benefits to healing relationships. So there's a whole world out there that we don't even really think about. When we say something like there's no point, we've really got to understand more deeply what the point is before we say it's not worthwhile.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, great point. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So often, what we're saying is fruitless is getting them to change their mind. Right. And that comes from that place of self-righteousness. And I'm right and you're wrong. And it's so important to be able to release attachment to that and shift to, like you said, um, focusing on the common humanity. I think that's how we can get over that hurdle. Yeah. And, and to see
1: there was this wonderful piece I read. I just found it. It was in my files. I don't even know who wrote it. But it seemed to me to be very true that the answers to the challenge that we face are only going to be found in conversation with each other. No one person, right? No one group has the answers. They've got to be surfaced in conversation. So if we really want to solve our problems, then we really need we need to... We, And and it's hard work. It's hard work to listen to people that we disagree with, but it's necessary work, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about your book, and it's just, I mentioned it in the intro, but just to repeat it, it's called Difficult Conversations, Mm -hmm. The Art and Science of Working Together. Um, You share numerous powerful stories that illustrate how being willing to have difficult conversations has the power to transform. And in asking this, I'm fully aware that this might be like asking you to pick your favorite child, (laughs) because there are so many good stories. But out of all the stories that you do share, which one feels like it suits the time that we're living in right now that we can learn something from?
1: Well, I I would say that it's maybe, well, there is a a story, but I think maybe before I get there, there's an exercise in the workshop. That's where my mind went first, you know, with that question, was thinking about that exercise, where... People actually share their stories with each other, and while it can be well that can be uh, initially uncomfortable for people uh, to sit down with somebody and, and share their life story, um, it always ends up being absolutely the most positive, inspiring, joyful experience of of the whole workshop and people will say things like, "You know I've known this person for ten years and never knew you know x y z about them or you know I've known this person for thirty minutes, and I know them better than people I've known for my whole life. You know it's such a powerful experience and so while I think while you know there's there's being willing to engage in difficult conversations, there's also being prepared to engage and and so that exercise of really getting to know people, getting back to that experience of a common humanity is really essential and the story, and I don't know i mean I have even mentioned this you know on the first time we talked, I can't remember but you know, is it at a workshop, and a young woman sits down at the workshop. People sit at tables, right, about, you know, six to eight people per table. And she sits down at the table, and she notices that, she, you know, the older gentleman sitting to her right has a Trump Tower notebook. And she thinks to herself, uh, you know, oh, Lord, I hope the workshop gives me some tools to deal with this guy, right? She thinks there's going to be trouble. And they end up being partners and sharing their life story. And it turns out that, you know, she is married to an Iraq war veteran who was suffering from PTSD and it was putting a lot of strain on their marriage, on their family, obviously a lot of strain on her husband. And it was a source of, you know, of suffering and, and pain. And it turned out that the older man was a Vietnam war vet who had suffered from PTSD. And so she said he was able to connect and mentor me in a way that only Someone with, this, with the same shared experience could understand. And she came away from that after the uh, story sharing exercise where the Trump Tower notebook was no longer a trigger for her. It's not that it didn't necessarily mean something to her, but it didn't trigger her because now there was a deeper foundation for the relationship. And they became very close, you know. And, and on his side, his side of the story was. It was very meaningful for him to finally feel needed. He did not feel needed or that he had something to offer. So it was really just this beautiful human connection among two people who at first, had they shared their political background, never would have wanted to have talked to each other. But now you could imagine they could have quite a good conversation at that level, having connected at a deeper level where the subject matter was no longer a trigger. There was something deeper that that binded them as human beings. So I think that definitely is a highlight from my experience of doing the workshop, for sure. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Yeah, it reminds us that um, people are are (laughs) multidimensional, and Mm -hmm. we can't just Mm -hmm. see one piece of evidence of something they're wearing or carrying or even sometimes something they say and extrapolate from that that we know everything about them.
1: Yeah. Yes. Right. We know. We know everything we need to know. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and this is on. This is and forgive me for just taking a little bit of a tangent, but I think we have so many projections on people, and and that really is a problem. And and one thing that I have noticed in doing the workshop that there's something about it that, um, like when I first created it, right, I thought it was going to be for for liberals. And what I found is that it's really uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, that the subject matter resonates whether you're liberal or conservative. And I think one of the reasons is, is because it just presents information about self-awareness, things we need to know about ourselves, about the dynamics, and it objectifies things. It's not a workshop about a specific issue, which tends to polarize immediately. It's about self-awareness. It's about relationship building. And there was this one gentleman that came up after this last one I did, and we did it in Southern California before there was this restriction on the number of people that could gather at any one time. And at the end of the workshop, he said, you know, when the workshop started, I thought it was really important. He's talking to me. He said, I thought it was really important that you declare yourself, meaning where I was politically. That was important to him. Mm-hmm. And he said, but by the end of the workshop, I realized that didn't matter at all. And I thought, that probably is the best, uh, it's not really a compliment, but I don't have another word for it. It was the best piece of feedback mm-hmm. that I've gotten, because I'm assuming for him to even say that he was probably conservative, right? That he he didn't know what he was coming into, liberals tend to have meetings like this or workshops like this, et cetera. So the reason that I bring it up is because I think it's so important to be strategic about how we gather and have the conversations that we need to have. We just, we got to get smarter about it. And I think a lot of people are learning about how to do it. And that information needs to become more readily available. Your work obviously is in the same vein. Anyway, it gives me hope. If we can figure out how to have these conversations, it gives me hope.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Conversations will change the world. (laughs) They
1: do every day. Yeah, yeah.
0: Every day. And conversations we don't have also change the world. Yeah. Well, Kern. Um, so the book is "Difficult Conversations: The Art and Science of Working Together." Tell us about how we can get that book, as well as connect with you.
1: Oh, great! Yes. Well, so the book is, is available on Amazon. You can get it either soft cover or ebook. For people who uh, don't wish to order from Amazon, as some people have chosen not to do, you can also order it through your bookstore. Um, they can look it up. It's it's available for them to order. So that is another way to do it. Um, I would also say I think the ebook version right now is free. And then my website is difficultconversationsproject.org, and uh, my contact information is there. I'm very easy to reach and happy to answer any questions or, you know, be of service however I can. You know, I don't charge for my workshops. Um, I ask for travel, but this isn't something that I charge for. So when we get through this virus and people are able to gather again, if people are interested in pulling together or have a community of people for whom they think this would be a good experience, then I'm more than willing to come and do the workshop.
0: Great. Do you have a a minimum number of people that you need for a workshop?
1: I I personally don't. I don't have a minimum or a maximum. Yeah.
0: Okay. So anyone listening, if that sounds um, intriguing and appealing, then please reach out to Kern because that's such a generous um, gift that you're giving everyone. So thank you so much. And thank you for the generous sharing you've done here. Once again, it was a lovely conversation and full of very um, thought provoking information and insight. So Thank you, and I hope that we'll be talking again.
1: Well, I hope so, too, and
0: thank you so much. I
1: really appreciate uh, the opportunity.
0: Here's your call to action. The next time you see someone, whether that's online or in person, that outwardly looks like someone that you wouldn't guess that you had anything in common with, catch yourself in the act of othering them. You might be othering them because of the way they're dressed, or their profession, you know, the work that they're doing, the language that they speak, their race or gender, or something as obvious as having a Trump notebook or a Bernie for president button. The othering that we do is Us making a conscious or an unconscious assumption that a certain identified group poses a threat to the dominant group. And in this case, dominant could simply mean whatever group that you are part of. Poses a threat sounds a bit dramatic, but it really just means that something in our identity might be challenged by this other person's presence. The next time you catch yourself in an us versus them or me versus you situation, just pause. Take a breath. Remind yourself that they have a story, a complicated, messy, beautiful story that isn't obvious from outward appearances. That story includes joy, love, heartbreak, disappointment, grief, excitement, and pain, just like yours. If you can remember that you each have a story that shares what Kern mentioned, our common humanity and all of its complexities, you can more readily see that person as a member of your group, as a member of the collective common humanity group. You don't have to know them or agree with them to honor the common humanity that you share. And it might be a stretch, but you can earn bonus stars in this little call to action exercise for considering the possibility that if you did know that person, you might just love them. And even if you didn't get to know them, you can still easily send them love. We always have a choice about what energy we choose to put out. What good does putting out contempt or fear? It does no good. It might feed our self-righteous need-to-be-right ego, but that's not good, healthy food. It's junk food that gives our mood a spike before we go crashing back down again. I'll leave you with one of the most simple and powerful stories that illustrates this point. You've probably heard it before, but it's always worth hearing again, and I'm sharing it because I need to hear it again. And it's called The Tale of Two Wolves. One evening, an elderly Cherokee brave told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside people. He said, My son, the battle is between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is anger, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, grief, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one that you feed. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? You can find past episodes, find out how to leave a review, and learn more about the show at howcanisaythis.com. And if you're looking for a dynamic, informative, and thought-provoking speaker for your next, and I will say virtual for right now, conference, meeting, or event, I would love to talk with you. You can email me at beth at howcanisaythis.com or complete the contact form on the website. A very special thank you to our podcast producer, Paul Messing. And our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously.